Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Hey everyone, welcome along to the show. I'm glad you could join me as we're going to be speaking with Darren Ward. And in this interview, we talk a lot about impact and in particular in the NGO world. And what does governance mean? And how do you make sure that you have good governance of organizations? We're going to get straight into the interview, but I did want to say that at theseeds.nz, there's a lot of content going up, including videos and articles and different writings that I've been doing. And also, I'm working on a newsletter for Seeds. So if you go there, there's a little place that you can sign up. And I'm going to be more active about sending more updates about upcoming episodes, as well as looking back and giving a summary of some of the key ones that have been coming out. So if you go to theseeds.nz, you can sign up there. And if you do enjoy this interview, then consider checking out some of the more than 120 in the back catalog. Now let's get into the interview with Darren. All right, so it's a real pleasure to welcome Darren Ward, who's the founder of Direct Impact Group. Thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks, Stephen. It's great to be with you. Yeah, and I'm glad that we're here because you almost didn't make it, right? The fog? Yeah, yeah I was lucky. I was meant to be, I think, because I was the first flight to get out of Auckland this morning. I've got a whole bunch of friends up there that are on cancelled flights that were trying to get down, but right. um, I made it, so pleased to be here. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I got the text messages, will he make it or not? I don't know. It's a, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, that's good. And I'm really interested in what you're doing, um, looking at Direct Impact Group and coming alongside businesses and organizations helping them to think about their vision and their strategy and what they do and why. Um, but as you know, because you've listened to the podcast, yeah. <laughs> what, what we try to do is unpack a little bit of the history of the person and kind of, I find it's helpful to work out where the person's from to work out why they're doing what they do now. So if it's all right, we're just going to rewind right back to the start of your life and just yep. tell us a bit about your childhood and where you're from. Yeah, sure. I uh, was born in, in Wellington, um, but my family moved to Tauranga when I was one, so I don't really remember too much about Wellington. But, um, and uh, Dad worked for, for the local bus company uh, in Tauranga. He was their operations manager. Or, and, um, yeah, we, we moved into a place, and actually we moved into a, a unit, and over the fence was um, an elderly Māori individual, guy um who we got to know and he he became like another grandfather for me which was quite cool and uh, his father had been one of the early mayors of Tauranga or the first mayor of Tauranga which was really surprising because he was uh um an Englishman New Zealander uh, Mm -hmm. but he married a Maori woman which Mm. was unusual in those days Mm. and uh, became mayor of Tauranga we got to know him and that gave us a great grounding in Tauranga history and all of that sort of stuff Mm. we moved a couple of times and actually my formative years really were growing up in uh, a suburb called Maryvale, not like Maryvale down here in Christchurch. Right. It's a bit the opposite. Uh, Maryvale and Tauranga is a it's a wonderful community, but it'd be one of the poorer communities in the country. Mm. Um, went to the school, um, now a, a decile one school because we like to label everything. Mm. And um, you know, it was it was a great experience, but growing up there was certainly a, a different life to. Um, sort of what a lot of people would have in, in New Zealand in terms of uh, oh, just a couple of experiences that I think probably I, I kind of looked at as being, oh, well, that's just kind of what happens around here, but um, right. we're a bit shocking at but the time with, too. With you hindsight, know, you kind of realise. you're looking at it going, well, they were a bit weird. <laughs> um, you know, sort of as the, uh, the waking up one morning and um, seeing... Um, 
I mean, my curtains and looking out the window and we were on a hill and mm. there was sort of a, an eight foot wall between the neighbours and, and our place as they were the next house up the hill. Okay. And hanging out over Dad's veggie patch, you know, the good old Kiwi section in the days of the veg, veggie patch at the back, was a, a Holden Kingswood, <laughs> sort of part way swinging. Right, as and, you do, um, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> cause, you know, and I mean, I'd slept right through this thing, crashing through the fence. It was yeah. like, yeah, whatever. And uh, so we went out and we... Um, I went out to the kitchen, you know, getting a glass of water or asking mum what was breakfast or whatever, and I looked out and there was a sort of a, a red stripe down the weatherboards of the, the house next door. Hmm. And what had happened is that the um, the gang that were in the road next door had heard that one of their girls was at a party at some units at the back of the property next door um, with another guy. Hmm. They don't take too well to that. And uh, what they'd done is they'd come round, he'd heard that they were coming and tried to flee, he was in the car. They pulled him out of the car and sort of smacked his head against the wall and ran it down the wall. Wow. Um, we'd slept right through it. We had no idea. Gosh. Um, you know, the, you looked at the house on the other side, and I can remember seeing our next-door neighbour sitting on the front doorstep um, injecting himself with, I think it was probably heroin or something like that, But mm. um, and then standing in the middle of the street, you know, on the top of a blind hill, uh, cracking a cattle whip because, well, why not when you, you know. And But there were just, you know, that gang influence in the suburb, um, but I think one of the things that really took hold for me there was at school, and we had teachers that were just fantastic, real old-school great teachers who believed in every kid in the class. Mm. And you saw these kids coming out of tough houses, uh, tough families, um, doing really, really well academically. Mm. I mean, I was always fairly good for whatever reason, but these kids would, would nail me at times. They were really bright. But unfortunately, you know, when I look back now and I see them as... What happened to them as teenagers and, and then into adulthood and mm. what have you, you've sort of seen a lot of them now that have you know, gone down the wrong path, if you like, and mm. um, yeah, so their that life's just, changed. So. That must have really shaped your view of the world. Yeah, guess, growing really up did. in that environment. Yeah, it really did. I think, you know, I, I always believed from a very young age that everybody has got potential, everybody has got something that they are here to offer the world and to offer others. And... Um, society's role if you like is to work with others to unlock that potential unlock that talent and make the most of it mm. um and you know that's sort of something that i guess i i've always wanted to end up working doing mm. um and um so you can kind of trace what you're doing now yeah you we don't yeah. want to summarize the entire conversation no but absolutely <laughs> it yeah. sounds like yeah um that childhood and what you grew up with knowing has influenced what you're doing today yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, even um, looking at sort of where my, my career path went. Um, so, as I say, grew up in Tauranga, did well at school. Mm. Um, Before we get into the yeah. career path and things, can yeah. I just ask a question? Because you mentioned the neighbour when you first moved up there and how that person had sort of become mm. like a second grandfather in a way. Can you just describe, I always am curious about those relationships between generations. Yeah. Can you just describe what was it that made that person special? What did you appreciate about them and how did they influence you and in, in who you've become? Yeah, sure. Uh, his name was Lionel Adams um, and you know, he was an old man when we mm. met him. Um, and he just took a genuine interest. He had no grandchildren of his own. Hmm. Um, and so yeah, he just gave us time, um, much to my mother's despair at times, because every time she got me dressed up to go out anywhere or anything like that, um, you know, I'd, and, and 
I'd end up at his place and then we'd be off looking at the pukekos in the swamp <laughs> and, uh, and what have you. And it was just giving that time. Um, and having that time with him, having someone who just really gave you time, you know, dad was working, mum was a stay-at-home mum. But, yeah, it was just someone who was not mum or dad and you're a, a little kid, a preschooler, you, you think these people are really cool. And that continued through until he died when I was 15 mm. of someone who really just genuinely took an interest, shared his his wisdom and his knowledge. Mm. Um, and I think even at that stage it was really recognising that what he shared was real wisdom. But probably more than that, it was actually his belief in me and in, in our family and, and, and that we could achieve. Mm. Um he even said to mum and dad, look, he would pay for me to go to King's College, um, which you know, we turned down. We didn't take it. Um, but, you know, that was sort of that level of belief. He said, you can do anything you want to do. Mm. You know, you, you, yeah, just believe in it and, and what have you. But he also gave a real grounding, and I think it's from him that I've got this real interest in, in history um, and what we can learn from the past. Um, but he always did it in a way that was looking forward. And he always did it in a way that was about how you bring people together to achieve rather than how you, you work on separation and, and all of that sort of stuff. And then he had a wonderful irreverence to him as well because um, he was a bit deaf, actually <laughs> he was very deaf. And, um, you know, he was, things like he would have people that would ring him and what have you, family members that would ring him and there were a couple of them that were prone to talking an awful lot. And so what he used to do, he used to say to us, he says, oh, look, I can never hear them anyway. So he says, I just put the phone on the sideboard and walk past it every now and again and pick it up and go, hmm, yeah, yeah, right, hmm, <laughs> and then carry on making his cup of tea or whatever. Um, or he got pulled over, he was a dreadful driver. He got pulled over by a traffic cop and um, one day and, uh, he nearly could knock the cop off his bike. And while the cop's standing there writing him out a ticket, as you can imagine, not terribly impressed, he turns around to mum and he goes, ah, silly young guy, he's just trying to fill up his book of tickets. <laughs> you know, so, um, but his understanding of history was huge. And, and right. um, But, you know, another one of the probably more embarrassing moments for mum was she went to see the movie Utu with him. Uh-huh. And about oh, halfway or two-thirds of the way through, he leans over to mum because he was deaf, his voice was very loud. He says, well, it's not bad, but it's historically incorrect. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, that yeah, there was that side of it, and I think yeah. I kind of picked that up off him. But, so he was a, a major influence growing up. And, yeah. then, um, and it sounds like, the, just to draw out the key thing there, yeah. is the time that he spent yeah. with a young boy yeah. and belief in them, yep. right? Because so how, how many young people today would, would benefit from n- knowing that oh. someone from a generation above them believes in them, is yep. backing them, Yep. will offer to pay for school fees or whatever you whatever, know like, you know yeah uh, you're gonna do great things so there's very little of that encouragement mm. isn't there even yeah. from someone who's not your grandfather that, well, that's, that's pretty cool that's pretty cool yeah. yeah and i think you know it's just that benefit of working or not working but living and, and having relationships that are cross-generational and, and yeah. seeking out that and um i think it's something that we have lost mm. in the busyness and the sort of mm technology-driven way of life these days of just, yeah. just sitting down with someone and, and chewing the fat and, and learning. Mm. And I think the, the problem is often we've got our phones out and we're checking messages and we're not present in the moment yep. to realize that the neighbor's kid over there is someone that we could actually become a mentor for. You know, yeah. we don't, we because as adults, we kind of have the responsibility to yeah. do that, don't That's we? Right. It's not for the little six-year-old to do it, but if we 
took yep. the step. Yep, that's good. Yeah, so yeah, and yeah, look, I'm guilty of that myself. I, yeah, you know, and, and oh, I'm actually, <laughs> I just started on the on the flight down listening to an audio book. Yeah. Um, and it's ironic that I'm listening to it as an audio book and downloaded it onto my iPhone. But it's Cal Newport's Digital Minimalization. Okay, <laughs> and, and looking at actually, you know, what is the impact of of the phone and social media and all yeah. that on us. And I, you know, it's um, yeah. yeah. So what, if you can summarize the book so far, what's the um, key theme? Basically, it's saying much, that you know we've connect, disconnected from now, right? So much that we're just constantly distracted by mm. um, our smartphones, by social media, by all um, technology, and it's actually ruining our lives. To be mm. blunt about it, yeah. um, and you know, as the dad of five growing daughters, I uh, I kind of look at that at times and think, boy, I wish they'd put the phones down. But often, then I look down and I'm holding mine as well. Yeah, you know. So yeah. I think there's a lesson, and then I think we'll see a, a swing away from. The intensity we've got now but yeah, yeah. who knows it's yeah it can become almost like an addiction doesn't it? oh yeah i mean well, they talk about that in the book of, of right. it is actually an addiction they yeah. have now qualified it as yeah. an addiction which yeah. is um it's a wee bit scary really when you it is, think isn't about it? it yeah yeah i took the little you know the little notifications you can get on facebook or mm. twitter or whatever mm. the little red thing that says oh there's something there i disabled it yep but i still find that i Quick in just to check, is anybody, you know, what's what's happening? So it's, yeah. it's a danger. Interesting yeah. story on that. You know, you said it was a little red button. One of the things they talk about in the book actually yeah. is Facebook notifications used to be blue, but oh, okay. people weren't clicking on them. Ah. They turned them to red, and the, the click-through rate went through the roof. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Urgent, important, yeah. danger. Yeah. Got look at it. Hmm. So, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. I, don't know. Don't know where that'll head, but it's, it's interesting. It is, we are where we are. Yeah. And we're recording this in 2019. So at some point in the future, someone will be listening and yeah. going, oh, this is what actually happened. Yeah. You got even worse. You got more addicted. <laughs> or, <laughs> or the other way. We actually went the other way, which yeah. where I kind of hope it goes. Yeah. But, um, yeah, yeah. but I think the fascinating thing will be in the future, you know, like in, say, 10 or 20 years, because you can see the beginnings of it now, the sort of... Um, moving away from the phone, like with Siri and sort of these voice, you know, voice exchanging yep. with yep. the computer, like what's the what's the temperature? Yeah. What's the turn on the music? Uh, write an email to this. Like I think that's probably going to increase going forward. Absolutely. Rather than being dependent on yes. holding a phone and typing in the command. Uh, I so, tend to agree. I think yeah. the voice tech is going to be the way of the future, and you know the potential of that is actually quite huge. Mm. Um, so yeah, I I think that'll be really interesting to see where that heads and yeah. how that then integrates into our life. Yeah. Um, but, you know, the potential is that that could integrate a heck of a lot more into our lives and actually we become more dependent and reliant on it. So I think we've just got to be careful with a lot of this stuff. And, yeah, yeah there's some stuff I've been doing lately around what that means for, for people in um, developing countries in particular. And right, yeah. yeah. It's just been interesting looking at that. Yeah. Well, I was talking to someone the other day who was sharing that some developing countries are skipping over some of the infrastructure construction that in the West we've laid out cables and, you know, connecting this to that. And they've just skipped over it because mm. they're satellites yep. and they have the phone to connect and yeah. they don't even need that infrastructure. No, so that's, that's, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I, I was in, um, and even it was probably 12 years ago now, but I'm on, in Mwanza in uh, Tanzania, so in the, the north east of Tanzania, mm. shores of Lake Victoria, which is, is huge. And we went over to um, Singarima, and there were fishermen there who had quite basic mobile phones. It was the first phone they'd ever had. They skipped the landline. Right. 
and they were using the phones to check with the dried fish market in Mwanza what the price of fish was for the day hmm. to work out whether it was better to take the fish they were currently drying to the market or whether to go out and catch fish. Hmm. And that was 12 years ago. Um, last year I was in um, Nairobi in Kenya for a, a conference that we were involved in through the International Civil Society Centre called Scanning the Horizons, which is looking at what are the, the new trends and new threats and new opportunities that are coming down the path at international NGOs mm. and how do they respond to them. Mm. And we visited what's called the Silicon Savannah, mm. which is Nairobi's answer to Silicon Valley. Right. And uh, I embarrassing have to admit I wondered oh, what's this going to be like sort of thing well I was blown away mm. these are uh, tech startups mm -hmm. that are attracting venture capital funding out of the US at, at, in pretty big levels and doing the most incredible things mm. um, that are both solving social problems or have social applicability but are also commercial mm. and um, it was fascinating yeah. uh, to see how they're, they're growing and how they're driving change yeah. in those places and you know the ambition of the uh, CEO of the iHub mm. which was a, a tech startup hub uh, organisation they had three sites in Kenya and worked with um, similar hubs in five other countries that are, are moving forward with their technology ad adaption across um, Central and Southern Africa um, or Eastern and Southern Africa was to um, work with a million entrepreneurs in 10 years mm. I mean, the scale is phenomenal, mm, and the, the change potential. that could be driven and the potential is, is just huge. Yeah, yeah. And uh, we had you know, one of the um, senior strategy people out of one of the big international NGOs sort of said to the, the CEO of this hub, so you know, what does international NGOs can we do to help you? And she just eyeballed her and said, get out of our way. Right. She said, you've been coming, you've been driving a, a culture of charity and of people getting things for nothing we're trying to build a sustainable solution for mm. our country mm. that's where we need you working not in our way and and you know mm. driving a traditional path and yeah. that was quite confronting yeah at the time it would be yeah it's challenging yeah um, when you think because the traditional mentality is more the colonial sort of we come to help you mm. um and i interviewed a guy named mark ambundo from kenya and his interview is really interesting because he's talking about new zealand and one of the things he said is, you come to Nairobi, you come to Kenya, and and you look at the children who don't have shoes on, and you think their need is that they need shoes. And actually, they're fine. They don't yeah. need shoes. No. Your own cultural conception is informing your desire to make sure that the children are have shoes the same way that you have. But mm. Yeah. Well, this is fascinating because I love the podcast because we go all different directions, yeah. you see, yeah. and we could keep going on this, but I'd love I'll... to bring it back to your life. So yeah. um, we, we kind of got up to sort of your school time and yeah. things like, did you have a particular subject you enjoyed and was there a area that you were focusing on or was it was sports important or what, what type of person were you in your sort of teenage years? Um, I, I think sort of the college I went to, if you were bright, you ended up doing languages, if you were not in the top sort of two streams, you ended up doing accounting and economics, and under that you did, you know, the um, woodwork, metalwork, tech drawing stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I think I probably would have preferred to be the, the accountant and economics with the side of, of tech drawing, but unfortunately I got stuck in languages. Um, until, and that was great for the third form, until I reduced my French teacher to tears with just how bad my French was. <laughs> <laughs> and... Um, 
I, I really went down the sciences path. Okay. Um, and actually, at sort of the mid to late stages of, of high school, I, I really wanted to be a yacht designer, designing winning America's Cup boats. Right. Uh, quite liked physics and that side of things. Um, and yeah, so you know that was interesting. But I think always behind that was a um, probably a growing social conscience okay. as well. Um, so what was it, triggering that? Yeah, well, I, I think a it was where I grew up, and then b the other side of it was that um, my mum and dad, dad's considerably older than mm. um, than us. He's uh, ninety seven at the moment. Oh wow! And still got doing pretty strong, I have to say, actually. Yeah. And um, and mum was twenty five years younger. Mm. And mum was one of the last people who sort of contracted polio when it was sort of coming to the end of being treated in New Zealand and, and you know, when it was nearly eradicated. Okay. Uh, she contracted polio at the age of nine. Um, and so because of that, from sort of there on, she's walked with a limp and had complications around it. And mm. through that, I got involved in disability sort of work. Uh, I can remember at the age of 15 being Santa Claus for the, um, what were called in those days, the crippled children's society right um and um yeah i i can remember you know it was a little uncomfortable having the kids jumping on your lap excitedly with a colostomy bag on and stuff like that but uh you know i was sort of around that that sort of thing so i think that and the overlap of growing up in an area that was particularly uh poor compared to other parts of what was a quite wealthy city in tauranga um was was shaping that um, and also that idea that actually anyone can kind of do anything and, and it's about unlocking that potential and people shaped out of those sort of days, both within the disability sphere and, mm. and the community sphere. Yeah. Um, and, and just mum and dad believing that that was the case, mm. you know. Um, had a great, great upbringing. It was fantastic. Um, actually really enjoyed growing up in that sort of area because mm. life was pretty raw and real most of the time. Mm. Um, but... You know, there were great kids around and we had a guy that moved into the house next door to us, not the one that injected himself, but the next one. And he looked like you'd cross the street to get away from him. Mm. Um, but, man, his knowledge of 1970s rock, which I loved, still do, <laughs> um, was fantastic. And so, you know, he'd come over to use the phone because they didn't have one and we'd stand there on the doorstep talking about rock music for hours. And, I mean, right. it was just a, a great community mm. and... Because so it, it sounds didn't like have you a lot. Were, it was time. Yeah, and and you were kind of building bridges with people who were maybe different yeah. looking to you and, yeah. and had different experiences. Yep. Yeah. No, absolutely. And I think um, it's an. I I think that's where I've, I've picked up a trait that I you know try and and continue because I recognise it as a strength. Is I don't see people out of status or out of. Yeah, what they're wearing or what they look like or anything like that. It's mm. like, here's just another person. Mm. Um, and it doesn't matter whether I'm talking to anyone from, you know, the guys that are in the local gang through to the Prime Minister of mm. whatever. I've, I've never really sort of put on ears and graces or whatever for anyone. It's just you treat them as people. And, and likewise, you know, treat the, the guy from the gang with respect, yeah. um, not out of fear, although that's sometimes warranted. Right. <laughs> um, but also, you know, it's just another person in front of you and, yeah. and, and look at it that way and um, that sort of attitude. I think there's something inherently Kiwi about that. Mm. Um, you know, we, we tend to do that a bit more, but um, but it's also just also approach people from what you can learn from them. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah, I agree. That's that's a good learning to have early on in your life, right? Mm. If you can get that sorted, you'll you'll do okay. So you come sort of to the end of high school, and you've yeah. been concentrating on sciences more. Yeah, sounded like. Um, what what happened next? Did you yeah, know so, what you wanted to do? Or? Well, as I say, I was I was going off to be the next Bruce Farr or Laurie Davidson, which mm. sort of ages me a bit. They designed KZ seven, right. um, but um, the um, yeah, I started an engineering degree at university. Um, Where and did you go to do that? To Auckland yeah. University, okay. so moved to the Big Smoke. Mm-hmm. Lived in a university hostel there, which was, was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a good time. But um, university and I really didn't kind of agree with each other too much. Right. Um, I'm not great at being told what to do. Mm-hmm. I'm not great at being told, well, this is what the, the rule is, and therefore that, that's how it is. And, you know, well, mm-hmm. A plus B equals C, because that's just how it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I kind of like going, well, it could be D. Mm. Let's see if we could maybe make it that way. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I yeah, I just didn't really enjoy university, to be honest. Um, so beginning of my second year, I decided, look, the same for me. Really didn't have an idea what I was going to do, but, you know, fees were getting higher and what have you, and I thought, oh, you know, I'm either going to wait and work out what I want to do or I'll make my own path some way and, and mm. do it that way, which at the time was sort of, you know, everyone got to do went off and got a degree if they could get into university and if you gave it up what the heck were you doing but um yeah so um i actually um i met a a lovely young lady at university and um then you know that got a bit more serious and actually 18 months later we got married so we were sort of married at 21 and 20 Mm -hmm. um and um i was working i went did some work for a dry cleaning company and sort of looking at what I wanted to do and, mm. and that sort of stuff. But then I um, I actually ended up getting uh, ME um, and being sick for probably about six months, mm. um, where for a good chunk of that time, all I could do was lie on my mother-in-law's couch mm. um, and listen to her. Um, but, you know, no one really wants to go and lie on the mother-in-law's couch mm. and, and that being all they do, particularly when they're 20, 21, or 21 22 years yeah. old. Um, so for six months, I was sort of um, out of action. Mm. You use that time, I guess, to think a bit and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but when I was coming right from that and, and needed to get out, you know, we were actually starting a family and mm. what have you and, and, and needed to find a career, really. And yeah. I looked around and... And that, and that sickness, sorry to interrupt yeah. you, but that sickness, like thinking back on it six months is a long time yep yep <laughs> um, <laughs> what what were the stages i guess of going through that or like the you know the first month you're thinking right it's going to finish soon and then the second month third month fourth it, month fifth month like yeah. how it's did an, you what was that like for you awful yeah to be honest um 21 22 year old guys are indestructible mm. yeah you um yeah so when you're laid out and you can't actually you, know, you couldn't drive, you were just exhausted, you you sat on the couch all day, you went home at night, you went to bed, it was awful. Um, and just no energy and, and, and what have you. And as it went on, it was kind of like, gosh, this is, you know, is this, this going to end? Finish, yeah. um, I had the attitude of, yeah, it's going to and I'm going to get myself right. And I sort mm. of focused on that and um, and used that time. But yeah, it's a, it was a, wasn't much fun, mm. that's for sure. And... Do you think it changed you, the way that you yeah. approach life now? You know, um, like straight up, gone yeah. through that. Like, I, it's interesting. I actually look back on it now, and I think that I'm probably getting to a stage where I'm pulling back from how I responded to that. 
Mm-hmm. So when I came out of that, I decided I wanted to get into a decent career. I wanted to make the most of it. I wanted it to be successful, and I charged at everything. And right. you know, so from from that age through to more recently, it's been I'm going to charge. I'm going to do things hard. I'm going to 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 try and work really hard to make make things happen. Mm-hmm. And um, I came out of that probably quite sort of traditional career oriented and and what have you. Um, and I thought. You know, it's more recently I kind of look back on that time and actually go, you know, that time in some respects, particularly as I was starting to improve, was a bit of a gift. Mm. You know, there was an opportunity to read, there was an opportunity to sort of look at things and think about things and stuff like that. And I think now I'm having charged for so long to a point at one stage actually in my career of of exhaustion and and near breakdown after a a pretty big project that I was working on. Yeah. Um, yeah, you, know, you learn lessons out of that sort of stuff, and it's actually it's about how do I bring some of that stuff back into balance. Which, when you're trying mm. to run your own global organisation, it's not that easy, but we're trying. Mm. Um, so yeah, it was was probably a formative time. Like I think everything forms your life. Uh, I don't know whether it happens for a reason or, mm. or whatever, but yeah, it all forms mm. who you are now. But I think out of that time, I I became really focused on hard charge get it done right you know type approach so yeah um, i've been laid up for six months and now i'm going to make it happen yeah yeah yeah. interesting so what did that involve and also let's bring it up to date so um sort of how did it evolve and then how did you get into doing what you're doing now yeah well that was a really weird and convoluted path so coming out of being sick i um went around looking for a job and i decided banking would be a a great career Mm -hmm. um always sort of respected banks and what have you, it was a bit different in those days. Mm-hmm. And um, and I knocked on the door of the HR director for the National Bank on Queen Street in their regional office. And um, she thought I was someone two hours early for an interview. By the time she realised I wasn't that person, we were getting on like a house on fire right. and she committed <laughs> to finding me a job. Wow. Um, so at the age wow. of... A chance... Um, just <laughs> serendipity or whatever it was, yeah. you know, meant to be. And, and she was the most amazing person, you know, mm. again, in terms of starting off in a corporate career. We... She was the HR director. She wasn't where I was working, but we, you know, we kept in touch, and I, I right. learned a lot through her. And then, actually, a couple of years later, we ended up working in the same office. Mm. So I just started out on the phones and telephone banking mm. um, at sort of 22. But I actually be, um, moved fairly quickly into a, a management role. And then, at the time, we bought Countrywide Bank. Um, I um, got appointed as a, a manager and was the youngest manager that had been appointed at the time by the National Bank. Um, you know, which actually was something that would never have happened if I'd have got a degree because I would have been starting that much later. Right. Um, but I was running an investment services team um, looking after customers that weren't quite rich enough mm-hmm. for uh, private banking but had significant amounts that they were looking to invest on the wholesale market and, mm-hmm. and working in that space. Mm-hmm. Um, at the time we bought Countrywide, um, that was something that, you know, looking at that and the culture clash of two organisations at the mm-hmm. time was huge. Um, then I moved to uh, a big American multinational outsourced call center company, okay. running the contract for Telecom Extra, mm-hmm. uh, and worked there and then took on a business unit there which had a, a outbound sales focus. Um, and that was really interesting. That's where I went, think, you know, and I look back on it, that's where I learned how to manage cross-culturally. Mm. I had a team of about 120. I think we had 19 nationalities and 26 primary languages. Mm. Um, I learned you never stuck Indians next to Pakistanis because if something went wrong, they blame each other or fight. Hmm. Um, but the Irish were magnificent peacemakers. Hmm. 
There you yeah. go. So, um, so you're learning, hard work. You're learning lots from all of these different roles. Yeah. I can tell, like the cross-cultural communication and the, and then you know how to work out what the client actually needs and yeah. wants. Could you just bring us up to speed in yep. terms of right now? Because I, yeah. I love the word impact. Yeah. And you've chosen that as a key part of your the, the name of your company, right? Yep. So could you just talk us like what you're doing now and, yep. and how, that, sure. how that works? So um, what we've set up is an international consultancy that's working with organizations that want to maximize the impact, social impact that they're having. Mm-hmm. Um, we actually started the company. My business partner is based in Germany. Okay. Uh, we were both working for an international aid organization um, after the call center worked in another couple of organizations and then saw a role for the CEO of an international aid organization. Mm. Thought, oh, give yeah, it a crack. Give it, yeah. a crack. Yeah. it was an area I thought I'd move into later in life, but I couldn't get away from this ad and um, took on the role with uh, CBM, Christian Blind Mission, mm-hmm. and um, spent seven years there. But we were getting increasingly frustrated at both the capacity internally in, in CBM and in the sector to adapt to the change and the disruption that was really starting to happen. I see. And so, so there's a gap in the market there. Yeah, we, we, we thought well, we had the experience yeah. of actually working in an NGO, and, and and you know we could see that there was the the understanding of the NGOs, mm-hmm. but a lot of what was happening and was disrupting required the business now. So we both came from the private sector background, right? And so we could bring that skill set. Um, and the other thing was they they came in and they said, um, you know, this is what you need to do. Mm. And it was kind of like the first thing that they said to you, whereas we said, you know, the, the knowledge and what's needed actually sits within an organisation. How can we facilitate getting that out and then adding expertise into that to come up with the, the best solution? Yeah. And so we thought, well, look, the time's right for a bit of a change. Mm. And um, so we we founded the Direct Impact Group, mm-hmm. and um, that was four and a half, nearly five years ago, mm-hmm. and, uh, and have been working on that since, yeah. and it's been fantastic. Yeah. Um, so what are some of the unique challenges that an NGO would face, for example? Because I, I hear you, and yeah. I, as you know, I work as a lawyer doing mm. lots of work in the not-for-profit um, NGO space, as well as working a lot with companies. So yeah. I kind of see both see sides, both of, sides of that. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, but I'm just curious from your perspective, having worked for seven years within an NGO and now for the last five years in your role, mm. like just talk to us a bit about that unique yeah. aspects of it. Yeah, sure. I think, you know, there's a, a lot of this stuff actually comes around and, and we always start our reviews of organization by looking at the culture mm-hmm. and we use a framework that was developed by uh, a series of, of interviews with, the leaders, so the CEOs of the world's biggest aid agencies, mm-hmm. um, where they identified what were the cultural traits they thought they were going to need for the future. And that really talks to some of the challenges that are coming through about needing to be better at innovation, mm-hmm. needing to be better at um, the decision-making process, mm-hmm. um, those sorts of things. So there was a greater need for some professionalization in mm. it, a greater need for a business focus. And then there were things like how funding structures were changing, mm-hmm. the expectations of donors were changing and, and how they look at that. Um, that were putting pressure on in terms of the capacity and the skill set that sat with inside organizations. Mm. Um, so the, all of this was kind of coming to a head where they were feeling really pressured around how do we respond to that? Mm-hmm. Um, so one of the things that we found is that often in organisations, um, they're very program focused, which is absolutely right. You know, they're delivering the work in the way that they've often delivered the work mm-hmm. for a while in country, mm-hmm. um, and that's their big, big focus. The other one is how do we pay for their work and their fundraising using 
traditional mechanisms, mm-hmm. but they're not really looking at how they're collaborating, how they're partnering, how they're they're linking with others to improve that efficiency and effectiveness. There's still sort of the um, the issue around brand, and they're worried that if they collaborate and partner, it will dilute the brand and and make them make it harder to fundraise right and therefore it's harder to do the work that they want to do mm. uh, and that was a, a challenge for them and it was just these changing business models and, and what have you mm. and then there was also a wee bit of an attitude with some of them that they were too big to fail mm. you know it was a little bit the um i don't know goldman sachs or lehman brothers thing right we've um, been going for this many decades and we will we're continue. worth one point whatever billion dollars a year in revenue and we're just too big to fail yeah um you know and, and challenging that sort of thinking. Yeah. One of the other big issues, I think, within both at a, a domestic level and an international level is around governance and the governance capacity within organisations and really understanding the role of governance. Mm-hmm. I see that in the private sector as well. I don't think that's unique to the NGO sector, but it does happen there. You know, There's still stories where I've seen boards who are made up of by some of the, the sharpest minds commercially or, or good minds in a business sense, mm. and they get into around the board table at an NGO and it's kind of like they've left that business stuff at the door yeah, and they're not really honing and sharpening how are we making this organisation mm. as effective as possible what's happening that's coming at us in the future that we need to be thinking about and adapting to mm. um, so that's meant that it, it, you know, a lot of the organisations we've looked at have been struggling with that adaptation that's needed mm. you compound that particularly in the international development sphere with uh, organize or with sort of changes in countries. So if you look at countries like India, if you look at countries like Kenya, um, closer to home, mm. um, you know some of the islands that are moving out of developing country state into lower middle income country state, and the aspiration that that brings within those countries, the expectation that that brings, but they still have large pockets relatively mm. of extreme poverty, mm. um, but how you work in those countries is fundamentally changing. Mm. Who is involved in those countries is fundamentally changing. Um, you know, that's changed the, the development landscape. And then I think the final part of it that we tend to look at a bit, and we use a model where we look at all the external factors that are going on as well as the whole of the internal organisation. We don't go in and just look at one component. You know, client will say to us, oh, we think we've got a problem in fundraising, or we think we've got a problem in programme. We'll go, yeah, well, let's look at what might be driving that. NGOs come from, generally, a fairly traditional Western rules-based order of how you do things. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, as much as, we, I say we, because I've still well, worked in the sector for seven years and still very involved in it, as much as we like to think that we adapt that into country environments, it's still very much in the DNA of organisations about how they deliver. Mm. China don't come with that. China come with a lot of money. You know, the, the Belt and Road Initiative is, is huge. Um, they're coming in with very few expectations around governance and policy change that the West, when they give aid, like to drive. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's seen as a way of breaking the shackles of, of traditional sort of patriarchal aid. I had someone from one of the Pacific Island nations who's involved in determining where they'll take aid money from. Mm-hmm. Um, say to me, yeah, it was great when China came along initially because we could sort of stick it to the Australians and the New Zealanders and say, well, we don't have to follow all your rules and guidelines. Now we can get the money from here with no strings attached. Hmm. Now, it hasn't necessarily worked out that way in terms of how China have engaged, but by and large, they are demanding less up front. Hmm. Uh, and that's changing the landscape as well. So it's a really disruptive, difficult time for yeah. NGOs as they look at it. Then, you know, from a financing point of view, 
the funding is now able to go straight from the donor in New Zealand or the States or Europe to the program in country mm. and skip the international NGO. Mm. And a lot of people look at that and go, well, that's so much more effective. And, you know, I'm not paying for those fat cats in head office and wherever it might be. And so they're asking, you know, what is our role in this? They're not sitting there looking at it and going, well, actually, how do we make sure we get our cut out of diverting the money through us? They're sitting there going, what is our role in this new changing landscape? And some quite existential questions being asked by NGOs at all levels, big, small, everywhere in between. Mm around what is their role in the future and um, and how do they shape and develop around that. And um, so we're, you know, sort of doing a lot of thinking about what that would look like for the future and, and how they see that shaping. But first and foremost, that's got to tie back into the vision that they had when that organisation was founded and what it is that they're trying to achieve and then how they influence that. But I think we'll see a lot of change in what international NGOs are doing and I think even some domestic large NGOs that are, are working... Um, nationally are doing a more local driven program mm, that's really good and the, the word for some reason that comes to mind is the word rigor <laughs> the the idea because i think a lot of people get into ngo sector or charitable sector or whatever for motivations of the heart yeah you know they want to help and so i guess one of the things that i'm hearing you say is that it's about having that rigor having that uh, approach of treating the organization in a way that looks the the heart is key, the vision is key, but actually how do we get it effectively to do what the vision is, what mm. the heart of the organization is? Yeah, absolutely. And I think in any organization, whether you're private sector or, or NGO, mm. actually the vision of the business is the most important thing. That's that's what you're coming getting out of bed every day to go and actually do. Yeah. Um, and, you know, whether it's it's sort of Apple wanting to to make the best devices, to unlock the creativity of people and enable them to be sort of the best they can be and what have you, and that makes you the most valuable company in the world, or whether it's uh, when I was getting up and, and going to work at CBM every day, which was around you know, enabling people with disabilities to live the, the life that they were capable of living and, mm. and to break down the barriers and, and for them to succeed. Mm. You know, either they actually kind of work together. Yeah. You've got to have that vision really close. And I hate the term not-for-profit. Mm. I actually don't even like the term NGO because no one kind of understands what a non-government organisation is and it doesn't actually really define what they're doing. Mm. Um, but I think I'm seeing more and more organisations uh, on, on a continuum from for purpose to for profit. Right. And no one's either extreme of that because if you're totally for purpose, you'll never get the money to do what it is you want to do. Mm. And that's pretty depressing. And if you're totally for profit, you're actually going to upset your customers and your staff and mm. you're probably going to distract, you know, not attract these days investment. Mm. It's a growing move. There are investors to look at, at impact as well as returns. Mm. So everyone's kind of in the middle mm. somewhere. They're just on a, a continuum along that. Yeah. Um, some organisations are by far more for purpose, but they need to... To remain relevant and to remain sustainable, they need to move towards a bit more of the, the for-profit. Mm. When I worked for CBM, I don't think I ever felt more of a profit imperative. Mm. It's just what we did with the profit. Mm. You know, So we went out and we fundraised, and you tried to raise as much for as little as possible so you could maximise the money that was being put into the work. Mm. At the end of the day, if you look at it from an accountant point of view, that's profit. Yeah, yeah. It's just how you spend it. Yeah, And um, you know, it was a lot harder, and you're dealing with... Um, Often in a business, you know, you've got sort of one customer at the end of it, or one customer base. We had two customer bases. One was the the fund 
the funders, mm -hmm. those people we were raising money from. The other one was the people that we were working with in the field. So they were local partners and the people in the communities that they worked with. Mm -hmm. We didn't keep both of those groups happy and, and if we weren't adding value to both those groups, mm -hmm. then you know the work wouldn't happen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and that sort of duality of, of customers was really hard and difficult to challenge with. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I can remember when I, I moved into the, the NGO land, um, you know, people in the business world, friends were saying, oh, what, are you working part-time now or something? You, you know, oh, you must have made a fortune going in and been able to do that. <laughs> I was like, uh, no, I'm working longer hours for less pay yeah. and um, loving every minute of it. But, you know, it was just this, this idea that NGOs were sort of an easier, softer mm. option is far, far from the truth. Mm. And the more that we can build that rigour in, and I really like that word, is, mm. is important. Mm. Yeah, and the thing that strikes me, because I do a lot of this in this area, particularly around impact investing, mm. and the concept that investors want to see more than just financial returns. And I'm sure you're hearing that word yep. a lot as well, yep. right? Like, this is a growing area. But underlying, and then, of course, the word social enterprise mm. is growing, mm. and more and more charities and others are saying, well, maybe what we're doing is a social enterprise, yeah. or should we inherently in our business build in something that is furthering a social mm. or environmental yep. purpose as well um, but the the point is each of these are examples of something even more fundamental i yep. think which is paradigm shift yes. of thinking absolutely and that's what's fascinating to me i'd love your comment as well but just the idea like when you and i were probably growing up it was and in a way it echoes the reaction of your friends is if you want to do good well, you go start a charity. If you want to make money, well, you go start a business. Yeah. There wasn't this sort of conception, even the possibility. And yet what we end up with is the two extremes. Yep. It's either you're for-profit making money so that you can then donate to the people who are actually doing good, and you kind of feel a little bit dirty because you're making money over here. But then you talk to those people, and actually they're serving on their local rugby yeah. club there helping out on the NGO board, they're doing all this other stuff. Yep. And so it's this, how do you get from either extreme isn't right. No. There's, there's got to be more of a, in the future, like we're talking 20, 30 years from now, there's got to be more of a blending between the two. Yeah, look, I would absolutely agree. And I mean, you look at some of the drivers behind where this is heading to, mm. and you see that Larry Fink from BlackRock has had yeah. his last two letters to investors focused and letters to the companies they invest in focused around how those companies need to really clearly demonstrate the social good that they are having and how they're adding value into their community mm. and how they're working on environmental issues and how they're working on governance issues so the esg stuff they call it. Mm. that you know that they're looking at that as much as they are looking at it for the financial returns now because they know that's what builds a long-term sustainable business and i think we're starting to see that shift where um, across all organisations, we're moving past the quarterly and annual results and actually starting to think longer term. Mm. Um, I just listened yesterday to Israel Cooper's mm. podcast and you know, it was what he was sort of talking about there yeah. too, was that thinking long term. I love it, he's got a 100-year business that's plan. Right, yeah. I mean, how, that, that's brilliant. Yeah. It was one of the things I worked with, a, an iwi organisation, looking at how social enterprise might be a way of lifting their whanau out of mm. hardship and if setting up a social enterprise hub would you know, work for them, and, mm. and we came out that yeah, probably wouldn't. We're hoping to, to develop that further, but mm. looking at that, it was great to do that in a Maori context because they they think generationally. Mm. 
And that is so good to work with mm-hmm. because they're thinking about, well, yeah, it might cost us a bit now, but then it's going to start to return. Mm-hmm. I think even within government, we've seen you know this government and the one before it talked about social investment and, and well-being, and it's, it's really all predicated around a model of mm-hmm. what can we invest in now that is, well, from a government point of view, going to save the money in the future, but actually improve mm-hmm. what the outcomes are for yep. those in our community that are struggling. And I think that that's a, a fantastic way of looking at governing because yeah. it's such a different paradigm and different mindset. Yeah. Um, in terms of organisations and how they shift, we worked with an um, a NGO or charity mm. which was owned by four other charities. Mm-hmm. It um, had a essentially its product was a software platform that enabled um, people who needed home support to um, use the, the platform to pay the staff that they recruited, hire the staff, um, manage contracts and all of that sort of stuff, which, you know, for elderly or people with disabilities is not their core strength, mm. and, and facilitate all of that payment and what have you under the individualised funding scheme that the government are trialling. And um, when I looked at it, I said, you know, you guys aren't a charity. You've got culture issues internally because you're fighting this idea of being a charity and being a business. I said, that what you are is a tech business with a social purpose. And I mm. said... Yeah, there's a whole lot of other recommendations in this, but I said, actually, I think you should look at privatising and um, and being a tech business. Mm. Just never lose sight of the, your vision for the tech business is to have a social impact. Right. And they followed it all through and, uh, you know, sold the business. Yeah, The, the four, cool. four charity partners wanted out of it. Yeah. There was a buyer who was willing to buy into it and it fitted a bigger purpose of what he was looking to do mm-hmm. um, in terms of, of broadening the, the discussion around social impact mm-hmm. and, and finding successful businesses for that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's been sold, it's been privatised and um, is now looking at global expansion and all of that because it's, yeah. it's taken away all those lenses of, of viewing it as a charity and how a charity should be run. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's where we see a lot of opportunity. And it's just about moving people down that around that sort of for-purpose to for-profit continuum and relationship. It's okay. Moving people around that for-purpose and for-profit continuum and where they should sit. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think it's fascinating. And I, you know, because of my role as a lawyer, I'm often at the ground level Mm. helping startups or people. And this is often the question I'm saying is, what's your vision? What's your purpose? And the problem right now is the legal structures don't actually require you to state your purpose. So the company may be set up, but you don't have to have a constitution. You mm. don't have to say what you're about. Um, so there's a report that I'll give you a copy of later, which um, I was helping out with looking at actually would a new legal structure yep. fit that sits in the middle. Yep. So you're not a charity. You're not a company. Well, you might be a company, but you're a kind of a permutation yeah. of a company that is about the purpose mm. And then you throw in living standards, framework type ideas, yep. and the sort of, there's more than just the profit here. You know, like it it's, gets really interesting, I think. And I think when people listen to this, let's say in 60 years, <laughs> hopefully they'll go, oh, that's what they were talking about. Remember back in the day when profit was king and the yeah. shareholder was the number one? And look at how it's changed. That's my hope. <laughs> yeah, uh, look, I agree with you. And I think, you know, we are seen a significant shift. And I, th- I think the pace of change could be quite fast because mm. one of the things that I see coming out of the likes of Eastern Africa mm. uh, in particular mm. is commercially oriented businesses that are there to, to make a profit mm-hmm. but solve social issues yeah. at the same time. 
and they don't see it as being separated. The separation concept is something that you I know agree. is sort of Friedman-like Western capitalist ideal. Yeah. And and you know, I'm a big believer in capitalism, but I think capitalism done right can have a huge good at the moment. Yeah. While we're looking at short-termism and yeah. sort of the individualized profit margin and, and just there for the shareholder. Yeah. That's and actually, actually right it's it's just this holistic way of looking, yeah. isn't it? Because as humans, we wouldn't um, cut off part of ourselves from who we are, but no. we kind of do that with our businesses yeah. sometimes. You know, like yeah. we're, we're not intentionally hurting the environment, but yet sometimes we're working for companies that are doing that. Mm. And it's how do, you, how do you fuse it together, all yeah. these ideas and concepts? And, yeah. Yeah. So for you personally, like I get the sense that you travel a bit, you, you know, you go overseas and things and you're meeting lots of amazing people who are all about impact. How about for you personally? Like how do you stay motivated and what is it that keeps you driving and, and keeping working in this in this particular area? I can't imagine not working in this area now. Mm-hmm. The idea of going back to a big corporate and what yeah, no way. Mm-hmm. But for me it's it comes back to that thing that we started at the beginning talking about that belief that everybody has got potential, everybody has got something to add, mm-hmm. and our role is to unlock that. And that doesn't matter whether it's you know a new student enrolling at, at King's College or um, a new kid that's going for his first day of school under a mango tree in mm-hmm. you know, rural Africa. Um, the potential and the capacity in that individual is huge. It's just mm-hmm. how do we unlock that? Mm-hmm. Um, where we, we saw that we could add value in that is by working with organisations using the skills that we've developed over time um, and listening to what it is that they think they need to be doing better and then working with them about how that can be enhanced, mm. looking at how they can build partnerships with other organisations that can enhance it and then use funding models and technology to to try and unlock that in others so that we can work with organisations who can then apply that and, and improve ha- the effectiveness of what they're doing mm. and reach people doing it that way. Yeah. Um, but at the end of the day, it is just about unlocking that potential in people um, yeah. and enabling them to live the best life they can. And I think, you know, the more that we can make that available for people, the better the world will be. We'll see, you know, greater incomes for people. We'll see a more stable world. We'll see a more peaceful world. Yeah, that's kind of that great big picture part of it. We just want to make a little bit of a dent in, in doing that. Yeah. Um, that's what keeps me motivated. Mm. It's it's seen that change, seen that opportunity grasped and taken, mm. um, whether that's here in New Zealand or, or you know around the world. Mm. Um, you know, we've worked in 22, 23 countries in the last four and a half years, which has been really exciting with yeah. some really cool organisations that are uh, out there. And, you know, I just have the utmost respect for the people that are out there doing the work in the field. I yeah. know that's not easy. I know yeah. what that's about. And um, yeah. if but we the, can help them do it better, great. Yeah. And the cool thing is, a little bit like my role, you're coming in and you're empowering people to to maybe adopt a bit more rigour uh, and, and to almost be a catalyst to help them achieve more which i always find really liberating i don't know about you but i can't go and help a thousand people in this particular area but i can help the person who can go and help the thousand people in that particular area and i think that's a really that's what motivates me often is i'm you know like by by pouring into this person or this organization i'm i'm almost you know multiplying the impact because through that it's having a wider wider reach yeah and it kind of comes back to even the the days in banking and the concept of investment Mm. if I invest my time with an organisation and then that influences what their people are doing Mm -hmm. that's a good investment because the return is just so huge Um, 
and it's also it's about always being there. We see the organisation as and, and ourselves as there to serve those organisations and through that serve those people. Right. And it's always about others. You know, William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, gave mm-hmm. a, a, I think it was either him or his son, gave a pretty famous sermon, which was basically one phrase and then, or one word, and he kind of briefly unpacked it other, afterwards, but it was just others. Mm. And that's what it's about. And I think that when you look at how you can serve others, that will enrich you and it will enrich them, um, maybe financially, but certainly, mm. um, you know, uh, socially and, and what have you. And um, that's that's what gets me excited. Yeah, no, that's really great. And what we'll do is in the show notes, we'll link to websites. So if you just send me a link to yep. anything, because um, I imagine you've got resources or information. Yeah, we've got there resources. We've got a few blogs where we're still, yeah. you know, the... The challenge has been, it's like any startup, it's the mix between delivery and and getting the, the back end right. But the website's got some great stuff on it and blogs yeah. and thinking and stuff like that. And it'd be great to, to you know link to that. Yeah, no, that would be good for sure. Because I think the more people can get the good content that challenges them and maybe pulls them out of the paradigm that they're in, whether they're within the NGO paradigm <laughs> or within a business mm. paradigm, you know, like this is, it's all really helpful. So yeah. Yeah, and I just want to say thanks for coming on the show because I think we've gotten a really good glimpse of your life and sort of what shaped you through your childhood, which is what I love about the podcast because you can kind of trace through, you know, from that childhood of realizing the value of every person, but also some of those key people that mm-hmm. influenced you, the teachers who believed in you, that neighbor, was it Lionel? Um, he, you know, spent time with you and fed into you and, and you know, he's presumably been dead for many years, yeah. right? But look at um, potentially what that little impact was yep. to then help other people. And the aim for the podcast is actually that people listening will get some inspiration from it to then maybe change something, little thing that they're doing. So, um, yeah, thanks so much for your time and coming on. And yeah, hey, look, thank, thank you for having me, Stephen. And, and look, you're achieving that. I know when I listen to the podcast, there's a couple of things that come out of it. It's like you listen to people that are achieving wonderful things and you go, actually, they're just like me. They started out like me. Mm-hmm. And and you know I think that that we all do that and talks to that that capacity within people, but it's also it is inspiring and uh, I've thoroughly enjoyed listening to the podcast and having a chat today. That's great, yeah. And I know you posted on LinkedIn, didn't you? Saying yes. something like I really enjoyed this particular. Episode. Yeah, it was Dave Sewell's one, and, and yeah, they were yeah. sort of talking about stress and and how you manage that. And that's right. Yeah, sort of something I'm looking at a bit at the moment in terms of what we talked about of that rebalancing things. Yeah. 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 No, it's helpful because sometimes I don't get feedback, you know, like it goes out. I know that hundreds of people listen to every episode, but I don't necessarily hear back from people. So it's really fun for me. Um, If people want to, this is a hint to them. If they do post stuff like that, it's like, oh, it's worth doing, you know, because it's, uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's, so thank you. (laughs) Hey guys, give Stephen feedback. Yeah, (laughs) that's it. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you so much for coming in and um, yeah, glad that we could make it through the fog and uh, it was really cool to talk about everything we touched on. Wonderful. Thanks, Stephen. No problem. Great. Well, I do hope you enjoyed that interview with Darren. I know for me there were several things that stood out, and it was fascinating hearing about his career, which has really taken him across a variety of organizations. And I really enjoyed his insights about impact. If you enjoyed this, then consider checking out some of the other interviews in the back catalog. And don't forget, there's a newsletter which you can subscribe to by signing up at theseeds.nz. Until next time!